0: Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles.
1: Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome back to the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with the industry's biggest names. This episode is with. Producer Jenny Steingart, who is one of the ones ushering Broadway's wonderful, wonderful return with Freestyle Love Supreme reopening on Broadway at the beginning of October. I cannot wait to share her story with you. This is an absolutely incredible journey from intern into producing Powerhouse, And she's helped create some of the greatest shows that uh, that have been on Broadway. This is also the beginning of a Freestyle Love Supreme takeover. So this episode and a couple to follow are going to be all cast and creatives from Freestyle Love Supreme. So make sure to keep coming back and checking the feed for more episodes throughout September and October. Before we get into it, leave me a rating and a review wherever you are listening right now. Find me online on Instagram and Twitter at theater underscore podcast or Facebook slash official theater podcast. Shout out. Let me know you're listening. Now, please enjoy this episode with Jenny Steingart.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders
1: stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
0: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos,
1: Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals.
0: Here you
1: go. One, two, three. Today's guest is a special one, having worked her way from intern to producing Powerhouse. She now works alongside some of the greatest names in our industry, including Tina Fey, Joel Gray, Sir Patrick Stewart, Josh Groban, and Lin-Manuel Miranda, just to name drop a few. After trying her hand as an actor, she quickly realized she felt most comfortable behind the curtain. She co-founded Ars Nova, co-founded a Japanese animation studio called Ultra Super Pictures, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. I am so happy to hear her story. Jenny Steingart, welcome to the theater podcast.
0: Thank you very much. It's great to see you, Alan. I'm happy to be here.
1: There are so many stories, both on in front of the camera, in front of the curtain, and behind the curtain, behind the stage, behind the camera, that are important, vitally important to making theater happen, to making TV and film happen, to, to making animation happen, and All of this stuff goes unnoticed and often unappreciated by your general fan of insert, you know, broadcast medium here. So for you, you're about to reopen Freestyle Love Supreme on Broadway. And I say you're about to reopen because you're one of the biggest producers of the show. Your past producing credits also include Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish, Great Comet. But I want to back it all the way up and tell me where little Jenny got her start
0: oh i spend a lot of time communicating still with little jenny Um, (laughs) little jenny was a performer for sure i grew up in a pretty creative household my mom was um my mom, had, <laughs> my mom went to performing arts and used to joke, she went to performing arts before they danced on cars. Um, <laughs> and so in the 50s, she was up the street on 46th Street going, and she was a musician. And as, um, as a small child, my recollection, she was a stay-at-home mom, but my recollection of her was someone who not only played the piano and sang every day in our house for herself, Um, as she had been a music teacher and a singer, she did voiceovers. We were always sort of around that. And my father was um, a broadcaster. He actually started in advertising, doing ad sales for radio, but he founded um, a broadcasting company called Infinity Broadcasting, which was a very large radio company that grew. And so my my life changed a lot as we got older and as that company grew more and more. Um, And I was just always sort of surrounded by creative people. Mm -hmm. And um, the messaging I got very strongly from my parents was to do something that I was passionate about. And the focus was always on the passion. And my dad used to say, do not ever make choices because of the money. He said, if you're really good at what you do and you're passionate about what you do, the money will follow. It will all fall into place, but be the best at what you care about. And so I grew up um, feeling very encouraged in that way. And um, as did my brother, we were both just sort of did the things that felt aligned with who we are, or who we were as people. And um, at the time, I couldn't conceive of doing anything anything else except acting. I was, you know, the theater kid. I was in every school play. I was in camp plays. I went to stage or a manor. I would program in London, you know, all of the stuff that you do growing up, if you're lucky enough to be in a position that you can do those kinds of programs and that kind of studying. But what was interesting about it is I, I mean, I loved the world. I loved the life of it. However, I think there was always this little part of me. It, didn't feel totally aligned with my uh the way i'm wired i am super type a i like to think i present (laughs) as type b but i don't think i do i needed more control over my destiny i guess it was very hard for me and i also was just one of those people that would sit you know when i was in a play as i got a little bit older when i was in something and the director would say something i was naturally like why is he saying that like it was very hard for me <laughs> yeah. to just kind of go with it i grew up here in new york city and i ended up at nyu interestingly not in tish i was in the arts and science school Um, and I was a philosophy major, but I was, um, auditioning the whole time I was studying outside of school. I wanted kind of a, a full college experience, but I also wanted the opportunity to still be able to audition and, and I was in, you know, acting class and I did all of that. And as I was doing that while I was in school, it was, it was fine. And I got, you know, I mean, I worked a little bit, I did a soap a little bit and some commercials and I mean, nothing substantial, but, but I was, I was kind of in the game a little bit in my late teens, early twenties. And, um, but when I graduated from college, it became really clear to me really quickly. This was not going to fly for me. It didn't, it just didn't align, but I couldn't imagine what else I was going to do in theater. I just thought I can't leave this business. I love being in it, but I didn't know what the options were. And, um, and then there was this day that I was I was in 1501 Broadway, and I don't remember, I think it was for an audition or there was something I was doing there. And there was a casting director who had his office in the building. This was in the late, uh, this was in the early nineties. His name was Leonard Finger and um, really sweet guy. And I, I went in thinking like, I got a schmooze. I need to, you know, work it. And I walked in and I don't remember exactly what my state of mind was, but it must not have been great because I somehow told this casting director that I was coming in to schmooze with that I was thinking of leaving. (laughs) 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 Note to self, probably not a good way to get a cast, get cast. (laughs) Um, But he was so sweet. And he said, you know, I have a friend who is Rocco Landisman's assistant over at Jamsin. Her name is Abigail Seymour, and I always plug her, even though she's not in the business anymore, because she really changed my life. Um, he called over, and on the spot, he said, you know, I have someone here, and I think you should meet her, and would you mind taking her out for coffee and just telling her about you know, what you do? So she reached out to me, or I reached out to her, and we um, we had coffee at the Polish Tea Room, which was then still here on the Edison Cafe, and it was so transformative for me because she was explaining what she did. Um, at the time Rocco ran Jude and later became, you know, the ran the NEA under Obama. Um, and Rocco was a huge supporter of women and, um, really seeing people f- for who they were, not gender, you know, I mean, any of it, it didn't matter. Mm. Um, and, uh, Anyway, she said to me at the end of our, you know, long coffee lunch, she said, you know, I don't have anything that I can offer you right now. But if you're game to intern, um, we're doing an event. This was right when Clinton was running for president for the first time. And she said, we're doing this huge event next month. I could really use some extra hands. So, P.S., um, I started interning and then I started kind of floating around Jujamson and whoever needed me and I ended up in the office. So at, in those days, in the early 90s, there were two offices up at the Jujampson offices that were not Jujampson people per se. They were folks who were affiliated with them, producers who they worked with and Rocco had given them a home in the Jujamsen offices. Those two people were Margot Lyon, who at the time was producing Jelly's Last Jam and soon would go on to produce Angels in America, and Elizabeth Williams, who had just won the Tony for Crazy for You, was doing Secret Garden, Um, and so I ended up in the office of Margot, Margot Lyon's office, and her assistant, Andrew Cato, who now runs um the amazing theater in jupiter um but in those days he was her assistant and he could not have been more loving and welcoming and i basically became like the assistant to her assistant and um and he and i started working together and developing things but it was pretty extraordinary for me because my my um perception of what it was to produce There was never a question in my mind that women could produce because I was looking at these two badass women who were at the top of their game being viewed as equals by Rocco. And I had happily from my home life, I'd grown up around parents and my father in particular who instilled in me. A certain level of entitlement, not in a bad way, in a way of like you deserve a seat at the table. The best idea deserves a seat at the table. And as long as you are off, you know, you need to always keep your mouth shut and listen. And you also absolutely, if you have something to contribute, you you have a right to contribute that. And so it didn't occur to me that other people were having other experiences <laughs> because I was watching these women at, in the height of their power in the height of their creativity. Um, And also they were both mothers and they had young children at the time. And so I watched, I was, you know, 22 years old. um, Watching them, I was far from being in that stage of my life. But certainly now as I'm past, I'm older now than they were when I started with them. um, I I recognize what a, a huge gift that was for me to witness that. Um, and see what was possible because it's allowed me, as I've gone on and figured out what works for me, what doesn't, because there really is no one way to do this and there's no right and wrong. It's really about becoming aligned with your your own core values and what is important to you, what you want to leave to the world, what you want to how much you want to be with your kids, how much you want to be at the office. I mean, all of those things, those are things we each have to decide and figure out what works. So, um, so young Jenny really uh, trans- transformed. I mean, I, I I went from what I thought I wanted to do, and figured out that my dad used to say, "That's why they put erasers on pencils," that it's okay to think you're going to do something and say, "Yeah, that's maybe not working for me. Maybe I need to shift my perspective a little." And so it's been trial and error, figuring out the kinds of projects I want to bring into the world, what excites me, what I think I can contribute, where, what's my lane, what's not my lane, because um, that's a big part of it also, is knowing what you're not necessarily great at or what you don't enjoy and being okay with that. Um, so it's been a process to kind of figure that out and get here.
1: That's amazing. and. I'm going to use that quote with my kids. That's why they put erasers on pencils. You know, you can always go back and, and change it. I can well, always go back. Maybe with today's cancel culture, not as easily. But
0: <laughs> yeah, in the early nineties, yes, <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> so, are your kids uh, are your kids into the performing arts as well, or, or are they just completely? They're like, Mom does this. I don't want to. I know how hard it is. I'm not doing anything close to that.
0: No one. Um, so I have three kids, and our oldest, who is um, just about to turn eighteen, is he he's he's got it in his blood I mean he is definitely <laughs> um wow that kid is all about it he loves everything to do with performance um and writing and he writes screenplays and he loves he's done stand-up and he study he's been studying I mean we've we have been um my husband John and I who's my partner at Ars Nova um, in terms of founding it and has been my partner producing for so long but we are big believers in process and craft, which is part of what um, I know. We'll we'll probably get to it in terms of Ars Nova, um, but in terms of how process oriented it is. So, with Leo, our oldest son, we spent a lot of years because there was, you know, a lot of like, can I audition? Can I? And really, now that he's a senior in high school, where he's he's beginning to do that. But up until this point, it has really been about focusing him on his craft, learning how to do it. And it's a, it's a lifelong process also. But um, the, the other two enjoy it, but they, they're not performers in the same way that, that uh, Leo wants to make his life in this
1: field. I was listening to an interview literally last night with uh, somebody interviewing Tiffany Haddish, and she was talking about her her process of coming up with jokes. And, I mean, comedy, comedy is hard. I think comedy is the hardest thing to do well. Uh, and, and she literally, she was like, she talks into voice notes in her phone all day, and then she goes home and writes them down, and she'll write down the punchline. She'll write down the funny part and then work her way backwards and craft a story around that. And it's so... It's funny to me that you're talking about the process of doing what... Uh, you're focusing on just learning what the process is and developing a process, because there's a lot of people, especially we go back, you know, sort taking it back to the cancel culture sort of thing. But I, I said that flippantly before, but it's, I guess, indicative of the internet and social media and everything we have now, because we hear stories of everyone just showing up on scene and being an overnight success. But there, of course, there are like rare cases of that actually happening where something, someone just does something and all of a sudden they're an internet celebrity. But the amount of effort and work and process and the overused term grit of just never giving up, yeah. I think is, is really, really important. And I, I really enjoy the, I think that's a key takeaway of what you just said is that if you want to be good at anything, even if it is comedy, which seemingly is just showing up and being funny, you have to craft that. And there are oh my goodness, there, there are stand-up comedians, there are people that that like major, major, great people who have bombed because because you, they haven't you, found their process.
0: You ha- but also bombing, failing is an essential part of the process. Absolutely. You, you you must. I mean, you don't learn in life we don't usually grow and learn from our successes. We learn from our failures. That is how we grow as human beings. That is true in every area of our lives. It's not to say you don't you don't get information from your success, but that is not where the the good stuff is. That is not where we really transform as people. And, um, it's so interesting. I've been, I've been talking to some friends about this. I saw an interview. I to remember where it was, but it was with, um, it was with the woman who started the company Spanx. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions of her was, were you afraid of failing? Like what did you think when you were starting this and the fear of the failure? And, she it was so awesome she was like oh yeah i I didn't even think about that and he said oh really well why and she said well you know when i was growing up my dad every day would ask us my brothers and sisters and me they would ask us what did you fail at today and they normalize he normalized failing. And it wasn't even just that it was normalized, it was encouraged. So I would tell him something that I failed at and he'd high five me. And he's like, all right, way to go. Because if you're not, if you're not pursuing something and you're not failing, you're not really out of your comfort zone and you're not growing and you're not stretching. And she said it became so normal for her that. It didn't occur to her to ever be nervous about failing when she was wow. launching a business. And it's so funny, I've mentioned that to a couple of friends who have younger kids than I do, because I was like, oh, I really regret that I didn't have time to do that with my kids. Like, I didn't know this when they were little. Because I'm totally you know, going to you...
1: do this now, by the well, way. Well, so and
0: one of my friends said, that is her new thing at dinner. She'll say to her son, so honey, what did you fail at today? And then he tells her, and she's like, way to go. You know, let's fail some more. And I think it's great. I think it's great because, you know, these are the things that we need to normalize and embrace and, um, you know, and it's also the faster you fail, the quicker you can succeed. That's the faster you can get there is Mm -hmm. when you, you know, oh, that didn't work. I'll try this. That didn't work. I'll try this. You just keep, you keep going. Um, so I feel like it's such an important I, th- I think it's important in every in every facet of our lives. It's not just about work. It's about as human beings.
1: We're gonna take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the episode. Do you have a, a moment in your career that you lo- you look back on and in the moment it was like oh my god I can't believe I failed like I don't know how to recover from this and now it, and now looking back on it, it it was one of those pivotal times where you're like oh that was great I learned so much.
0: Um, I have a moment about that, but it's not from failure. It's from um, and this is a big piece of who I am as a human being and who I am as a producer. Um, it's I, I have moments that I've experienced tremendous pain or loss or grief, and used that to pivot into something beautiful. And so, on the other side of the grief or the pain, I can look back. So, like as an example, the origin story of Ars Nova came out of my brother's unexpected death he had a brain aneurysm hmm. and um and we can we can go go into that in a moment if you want but um but I realized the loss of my brother which was the greatest pain I'd ever experienced over 20 years later as I look back at Ars Nova and all of the beautiful art that's been made and the the artists who've come through there at the time you, you know, you never would have told me that anything good was going to come from losing my brother. And would I give it all up to have him back? Of course I would, but I can't do that. So I can choose to make meaning out of the pain or the loss or the failure. I mean, that's really it. You know, if if, if we're going to have to go through this anyway, if you have to go through the pain anyway, then you better get something out of it on the other side. You better be growing on the other side. And to me, I really look, you know, it's like leaning into the sharp edges of it. Mm -hmm. Like our instinct as human beings is to run away from the pain because it's painful. (laughs) Who wants to sit in pain? However, when we, when we lean into loss and failure, And something that isn't successful, um, that is really where the growth happens and where we can take it to another level. And then on the other side of it, look back and say, oh my God, look at what came out of that. So I try to remind myself of that when I'm in the middle of the very uncomfortable places, saying, nope, it's going to be okay on the other side. Just let's just figure out what's here. What can we mine from this experience? so it's it's kind of how I lead my life and how i I lead um artistically and creatively as a producer.
1: Well, let's talk about Ars nova then so so tell me tell me about well, for those who are listening who don't know about it, tell us what it is and and then that my question was gonna be how how it started, but you answered or I guess technically it, how it yes. started <laughs> we have yeah <laughs> but yeah, so so let's get into that
0: so um, so I had been producing for um, several years at the point, uh, 1997, which is when my younger brother, he was 26. He passed away unexpectedly. He had worked, um, he was a really interesting guy. And re- I mean, <laughs> make makes me really look like a slouch. Like he was just on fire. Um, and had started at a very young age. He had uh, he had been a music major at Columbia and was passionate about early music in particular, classical music, but early music. And he started um, a classical record label dedicated to early music called PGM Pro Gloria Musicae for the glory of music. And um, he had just purchased. Uh, where Ars Nova sits now on 54th between 10th and 11th Um, in the mid nineties, he had purchased, um, it was like these guys, it was an accounting office or something and they had gone bankrupt. And in those days, you know, he'd gotten it for like a song. And that our neighborhood where Ars Nova is, is um, and was particularly at that time where all music was being done, Power yeah. Station, Hit Factory, like it was all right there, um, Sony. And so he was going to have a mastering studio and he he mastered, he did all of these amazing things and he was a musicologist. And so he had just purchased this land and was beginning construction on what this new mastering facility was going to be. And he died. And I was, aside from the obvious grief of it all he was you know my best friend he was my partner in crime he was the witness to my childhood he was all of those things that loss was enormous but i was also i was still in my 20s myself and so i was having this complete existential crisis of you know a young person in the middle of starting their life and just being gone and i was very conflicted about how i was going to move forward in terms of like, I was on my own path. And I felt that Gabe had been um, struck down in the middle of his ascension into his career. And I felt like I needed to honor that. And how was I going to keep his dream alive? And I was really just torn up over how I was going to keep his business going and his music and his label. And it just made no sense, of course, but I couldn't wrap my head around it. Anyway, so here's an example of leaning into the pain of it. So the first week after he died, we sat Shiva. And at the end of Shiva, the end of the week, there, it was at my parents' house, and there were so many people that had come, they had catered the Shiva. So at the end of the week, the head waiter who'd been there all week came over to me, and he whispered in my ear, and he said, one of the servers has asked if she could speak with you in the kitchen. So I remember thinking, like, OK. <laughs> like I just couldn't even imagine what it was going to be. And so I went back into the kitchen. And there was this girl there. And she said she introduced herself. And she said, um, I just wanted to tell you, I've been here all week. Um, I'm the same age as your brother was. I've been listening to everyone talk about Gabe. And I'm so sorry for your loss. I'm 26 also and in my real life i'm a fine artist i'm a painter and i have been so moved being here listening to everyone talk about your brother that every night after i've left here i've gone home and i've painted and i painted a whole new series of work this week and i wanted i wanted to share it with you and so she took out this giant portfolio that she had brought to shiva and it's been sitting there all day, obviously, hoping she was gonna show it to me. And she went over to the kitchen table and she opened this huge portfolio and she showed me these beautiful paintings that she had created. And I'm telling you, Alan, like the penny dropped and I thought, oh my God, you know, Gabe, his life, she didn't know him, and his life and his death had inspired art in a totally different form. It wasn't music. It was and I thought, "Oh my god, I don't have to carry on in exactly the way Gabe would have. I can pursue my my love, my dream, my passion, but with this PO through this lens, through the lens of how do we do what we are meant to and how could i allow other people to have that experience that Gabe ultimately didn't get to finish and so that was how we started and um Ars Nova became a place that was about championing and um, encouraging young emerging artists who were just starting out and the only barrier of entry was talent and treating them with respect. And so we, you know, in the early days, I mean, we, if I tell you it was as Mickey and Judy as it comes, I mean, it was definitely like my dad's got a barn. I'll do the costumes. I'll, I mean, I, we were, you know, taking tickets and we didn't know the first thing about starting a not-for- profit. And in fact, in those days, when we first launched Ars Nova, it was not a not-for-profit. We didn't know what the hell it was going to be. With the with the help of my family, my dad was very involved in it as well. It was truly, you know, when people have said like, "What was the business model?" I'm always like, um, "There was no business model."
1: <laughs> yeah, um,
0: it was truly a grief reaction, which I am so grateful for. I mean, I have no regrets because you know it was a little like a fever dream when we came out of it. It was like a couple of years after, and I would look back one day. I'm like what the hell did we do? Like we, we started a a not-for-profit company, but in those days, it was like, we just did it. We just did it. And it was coming from such a a pure place. And um, it is now happily morphed into like an actual, an actual company that that has a budget and you know all of those really nifty little things that help run an organization. Um, now it's you know it's obviously a very different place than than in year one when we were starting and didn't know what we were doing, but it was always. Um, and I actually do believe the success of the of the theater has really come from how deeply baked into the DNA the mission has always been. I mean, it is the the origin story is such a an authentic one. And it comes from such a real place. And God love those folks over there. They have stayed so true to it. I mean, whenever there is a question and has ever been a question of should we do this or should we do that? And if this is slightly off mission, but maybe we cheat a little because it's in the best interest of like financially in our best interest, we always arrive back to where we should be, which is, nope, we're not going to make that choice because this is the, what we were meant. We were set up to operate a particular way and to encourage art and to to bring it into the world. It's like being a midwife. Um, <laughs> and so we've stayed very true to that. And um, so I, I think that that is why Ars Nova has remained a really special place um, and unique. And I wish there were more like that out there um but it's i mean it's a very challenging it's a challenging place uh the world is challenging to for for organizations like this but we have tried really hard to sort of stay on mission and to support as many artists as possible
1: that's that's so cool and i i love that Uh, this is not only you know, it's obviously a legacy for Gabe, but and this is also becoming a legacy for you, because it's gonna be something that hopefully is going to last long, long beyond all of us and and usher in new new art. And there's gotta be though, going back to the business side of this because you are a producer right there there's the ars nova is not for profit it's like the beginnings of art it's ushering in new art and then there's the other end of it like you've got your freestyle of supremes you've got your great comments you've got your fiddlers in yiddish and those are millions of dollars of capitalization that you need to run you need to raise yes and uh, so great comet actually came out of ars nova right so i guess there's there's Two things I want to get into is one is is the actual process of of the big stuff, the big Broadway, the big marquee lights and the musicals. Right. And then uh, are you specifically looking for anything that you can bring into the next phase or is it just sort of like we're just going to this is going to be one entity of my life, one compartment and this will be another compartment.
0: So it's a great question. And, um, th- you know, there are even from a legal perspective, we're super, super careful because um, there I, we have to be careful that, that there's no conflict of interest in terms of what happens at Ars Nova, the not for profit. And then we have Ars Nova Entertainment, uh, which is separate. They both they both share the same name because John and I did both, mm-hmm. but they are separate. And um, so we are really mindful of um, and do not cherry pick from from the theater, what's happened at the theater. So there are a couple of exceptions, which I'll speak about. Um, You know, like Great Comet was, someone else was the lead producer on that. And I don't even know if it it would have been kosher if we had been the lead producers, because it would have just come out of Ars Nova. Um, Certainly if... Time goes by, and I because because of my connection there, I have close relationships with many of the artists who come through there. Um, those are relationships then that we can develop in and then say like, oh, let's work on this together, or oh, they'll they'll bring me something. That certainly can happen and happens. Um, in terms of taking something you know fresh out of its run at Ars Nova and moving it. That is that is more delicate because, again, we want people, first of all, everyone should have the ability to uh, entertain working with lots of different producers. And so that's part one. Part two is the exception to that rule has been the freestyle guys um, working with freestyle. And part of that is because when they first came to the theater, we were still um, a for-profit venture. So we, um, I don't know, had they started with us when we had already said, you know, we're not going to just move things coming out of Ars Nova, whether we would have been able to do it or not. But it worked out that right after Freestyle came to us, we just, um, John and I, and John in particular for many years really has been leading the charge from our office anyway, there we obviously have partners. Um, but, we had always um we had always been passionate about that project we really i mean i can't speak highly enough of the human beings involved in freestyle there is not a bad one in the bunch they are not just enormous talents but the kindest gentlest human beings they are just <laughs> like all of the good things they look like they are they really are um it's one of those things like i can't sing their praises enough and then have people meet them and go nah, i don't know i don't see it like they're just magical creatures all of them and um it's been a, such a joy so we were for years touring them um, early on, you know, they all did, we did like teach they were teaching artists and we'd bring them to schools in Brooklyn and they'd work with kids. And it's so funny now that I think back, um, a couple of different events that we did with them. I guarantee those folks did not know looking back all of these years later that like Lin-Manuel Miranda was like in their classroom. Um, or, you know, it's just hilarious. And I'm like, they didn't even realize who was with them, teaching them. But, we have always that particular project has just been one that we commercially have produced from day one. But other than that, you know, I really, I think I am guided by the aesthetic that is at Ars Nova. Um, I'm I'm most excited by artists who are maybe more on the emerging side. It's not to say, of course, that I we I don't work with um, really established folks and in slightly more traditional things, too. Usually, though, the more traditional piece, like a fiddler, there's a twist. So the Yiddish was a twist. But for me, it was also beyond the Yiddish of it, which was incredibly powerful. It was right around the time when the refugee crisis under Trump and kids in cages and all of that, it was mm-hmm. right around the same Moment in time. And so I focused for that production. I was the person who was really, um, we had a small team we put together. Ross Yoder and Catherine Markowitz and I from my office were putting together work around World Refugee Day, the year that Fiddler was out, one of the years it was out. We got the entire theater underwritten. It was like $80,000 to buy the theater out. And we Filled it with 500 refugees who watched Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish. It must have been 30 countries represented.
1: Wow. And
0: it was, it's so funny. I was just saying to someone, I was looking at a clip. I guess I must have been interviewed that day or something. And I was looking at the clip and I was like, oh my God, I look awful. <laughs> and I realized the reason I looked awful is I looked like a dish rag because I and everyone else had been sobbing all day it was so moving watching these refugees watching the, the the ultimate refugee story in yiddish i was just a mass of tears the entire day so i was like all right it's okay that you 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 know that's normal it's always finding you know what is the storytelling and what is the what is the metaphor that we can take away that is beyond the story. What is the universal story here? So I'm you know, I'm attracted to that. I'm attracted to narrative that has a universality that is resonant for us as human beings as well as just wanting to be entertained. Entertaining is great and don't get me wrong, I'm absolutely down for that, but if there's something on top of that that can be layered in that opens a window in some way, you know, as they say, like theater is both, is it, is it a window or a mirror? And I think the answer is it's both if Mm -hmm. it's done right. So I'm, I think I'm always looking for the window and the mirror.
1: That, that goes back to what your dad was saying. Find something that you're passionate about. That's what you want to do. And and it's going to make you want to do it because when the work gets hard, when the work is seemingly unbearable, if you love what you're doing too, it's still going to not totally feel like work, and I. that's absolutely... We're going to take a short break, stay tuned for more of the episode. Going back to the FLS guys, the freestyle Love Supreme, which also, by the way, you're, you're producing FLS Academy, which everybody needs to go check out because you can all still take classes and be part of the whole movement. But when you were still a for-profit and you brought them in, but where was the connection? How did you even discover young Lin, young Tommy, young, uh, young Chris Jackson? Like, where did all of this come from?
0: Yeah. So and this is um, before
1: any of them had any, you know, we'll put in air quotes, real success. Right.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. they were right out of I mean, they were just a few years out of college. Um, a bunch of them had gone. Uh, Lynn and Anthony and Tommy had gone to Wesleyan together. And there may have been one other member of the group at Wesleyan, too, that I'm blanking on. But um yeah, they were and Lynn was a substitute teacher at Hunter where he right. gone to high school. And right. um, it was so cute because we used to get little like groupies that they would come and see their teacher. So after after the show, it was always like Mr. Miranda, you were awesome. Um, it was so cute and sweet. I mean, he really had like a bunch of groupies, but they were his students. Um, a friend of uh, of ours um, had seen them and called John, my husband and partner, and said, you need to see these guys. And they went, I don't remember whether it was the drama bookshop or I think it was the pit actually, it may have been the pit, but anyway, they went wherever they went to see and John walked in and he's like, holy moly, yes. Um, And Jill Furman, who is our partner on Freestyle all these years and one of the producers of Hamilton and In the Heights as well, um jill had had found them not long before we saw this show or john saw this show um and she had aligned herself with them and had been um it came on as their producer and so right after this um and i don't know how long after jill had first met them we found each other but we all found each other and they came over to the office and we decided to work together and after that i mean it's truly been from that moment on it's been family i mean we have all grown up together and um and went on you know and obviously uh we know how it just certainly turned out within the heights and hamilton that went um you know and jill really was um i i really think responsible for for bringing those folks uh to into the world and obviously you know other wonderful people have come on uh and you know, worked on Hamilton and in the Heights and all of those things. But, you know, I big shout out to Jill Furman, because she really had the vision early on. And then um, I was really so thrilled that we were lucky enough uh, that John was lucky enough to see them and recognize that there was so much there. And we've all just kind of been figuring it out as we go along because in the beginning, it's not that every, no one ever saw those guys and said like, what are you talking about? I mean, it was very clear how talented they were. Absolutely. But I know, but I don't know in the early days, I think people didn't know what to do with them. So we got that a lot, which is they're really talented, but like, what do we do? And we just all felt for, I mean, it's, we're going on close to 20 years of this. We just were like, it's we're just gonna keep doing this. We believe in them. We believe in the show. We believe in the power of this show because, you know, for anyone who hasn't seen it, um, it's different every night. And it's because it it merges improv and comedy and music and it's and freestyle. And it's all topical because the audience throws out words in the vein of of you know, yes and mm-hmm. of comedy. There it throws out ideas and so in a given, you know, no show is the same in addition to the fact that you're getting different words every night, but it's, it's also that like whatever's happened in the world that day, the group can reflect upon in the moment. And so it's incredibly resonant and, um, it feels really special. It feels really special. And to me, it also feels a bit like a throwback to what theater used to be before you had your phone up and people were sneaking, um, because it was really like the only experience and the first the first time around when we did it on Broadway and when we did it off Broadway as well, you know, we put uh, the yonder packs where you put your phone mm-hmm. into a bag so you can't use your phone. And although on one hand, it, yes, it protects the performers from having it out on the Internet, I actually feel like it was such a gift of real presence where you are squarely in your seat, in the moment, experiencing theater with the other people in the room. And those are the only people who can, who bear witness to what is on stage at that moment. That's what it used to be like, not like that anymore. And boy, it feels really good to go back. I mean, now during COVID, we can't do that, the yonder piece of it. But I actually hope all Broadway shows start doing that in the future because it feels really special to be experiencing something where you're not so busy thinking, I got to get this on my phone. You're with the performers, you're in the moment, you're taking the journey. And it has been really the gift of a lifetime to work on this show and to see where it's come after all of these years.
1: I, I'm so impressed with that. And you're right, the guys, the the, the topicalness of it, the everything's topical, everything's real. And it's, authentic because you were talking about all of the people specifically are just, they embody what you see. They're not different people in real life because you have to, to be as good and as talented as they are. You have to be, th- you have to be that and real and authentic and open and receptive in, in real life. And on stage too, you know, like true is one of my favorite
0: that's my all-time favorite yeah
1: favorite yeah. I don't is it a game is it a a, a number it's a game okay yeah. call it a game. no
0: like yeah it's a game
1: okay so true one of my favorite games that they play is you know they take suggestions and then they tell true stories from their lives you know in, yes. in freestyle and every time I see any of them do it it's just like I have so much respect for the amount of honesty that oh. all of them are putting forward. And they, yeah. they are learning about each other. They've known each other for decades, but they're still learning new things about each other. And they're yeah. presenting it to a room full of strangers. And the amount of, of just, again, authenticity and respect that that takes, and honesty, is it's so, it's so impressive. And I can see why the show has just continued on like it has.
0: It's funny, that's my favorite game also. And if you are ever lucky enough to witness, they're all, I mean, Everyone who does that, that uh, game is just top of top of their game. But I will say personally, if you are ever lucky enough to hear Chris Jackson do true, there Uh, has never been a time that I have not cried if Chris does it. And I mean, and he, the word, there was one, (laughs) there was one word, one year, one performance, the word was tampon. And (laughs) I kid you not. Chris Jackson still had me in tears. Still did it. Um, so it's it's really something. The way they bring it around and just end up, you know, what is seemingly going to be something light and fluffy, and not, they bring it around to something where it is all of our stories. Mm-hmm. It is about love. It is about like whatever that is. It's really powerful.
1: Yeah, yeah. I the first time I ever saw the show was with Chris with C. Jack and it, you're right it yeah, was yeah. amazing and that it was him and, and it was the first time I ever saw Anisa folds too who is oh, one of the geez. the new kids on the block and in every way as talented as everybody else she's incredible oh, she's, and Kayla Milady oh my they're god they're incredible the, the new the new the new blood the new infusion those the,
0: ladies oh are God. fire they, they are, are so something. good they are yep. so
1: good I want to shift in in the final minutes we've got here I want to shift in a little bit tell me about ultra super pictures because it seems so so different a
0: part of this is um is my husband's um where he, he kind of comes in he he comes out of a, a comedy uh a comedy background and um, having worked in Los Angeles forever before we ended up meeting and working together. Um, and one of the projects that we have done, and he, he, he had already done some TV and film when we started working together and did Ars Nova. Um, but one of the films that we produced over the years was, um, it's about 11 years ago now called Black Dynamite. And it's, um, a exploitation film. It was shot on, it was actually shot on film that was from the seventies and the, it was mixed on analog. It was all like, it was as if it is a 1970 whatever film. Um, and it became um, really kind of like a cult classic. It's very, it was a very popular, um, it didn't have tremendous uh reach when it was it was a theatrical release at the time. But s- subsequently, it has become like this th- cult film. And right after it came out, we ended up um, doing uh, an animated series for Adult Swim, a couple of seasons of Black Dynamite. Um, and during th- the process of animation, and John had always been fascinated with animation, um, we met some amazing folks. And, um, there's a company in Japan that we started working with and became uh, close with the owner of the company and this uh, ultra super pictures. And so it has four studios under it. One of them, um, the one that most people in America would know would be Trigger. Um, but it's, you know, lots of really extraordinary things that are happening. And I think, you know, we are, interested in being a part of interesting things with interesting people who are doing really fascinating work, moving the ball down the field in various areas. It's again, it's about storytelling to me, like whatever, you know, I I am working in film and television as well and been working on a documentary and various things that are things that we're passionate about. I mean, you know, look at the end of the day, Ellen, it's like life is this is our ride. This is where you want to spend time being engaged in the things that are important to you. And as much as people are concerned about what people are going to think and, you know, people really aren't spending that much time thinking about what you're doing. The (laughs) truth is no one's keeping score. I don't need to say, you know, it's only going to be this. It's only going to be that it's, I'm going to say like, what do I want to do today? And if it falls in or out of what people think is, you know, what we should be doing or not be doing, I don't really care. Like I really care about the things. And so like ultra super pictures was an opportunity to be a part of something where we said, you know, we don't know how it's going to turn out. This is not our, our lane necessarily, but we'll learn about it. And um, we'll get to know awesome people doing amazing things, which is what's happened. And um, and we'll go from there. And so I think there are a bunch of projects like that that we are engaged, engaged in. Freestyle Academy is a huge area of also a focus for us as we are growing that company and making scholarships available to people. Because again, you know, these are things that are a metaphor, really, right? Like most people who go to Freestyle Academy are not expecting to have a life as a freestyler or they want to get on stage. Now, some people do, but... I'm going to say most of the folks who come through there want to unlock something in themselves, something creative takes tremendous bravery to do. And like, what can we do to facilitate that experience for other people? And what can we do to, to bring enjoyment in another form? So animation is just one of those things. Um, But uh, you know, they're really, it's about finding projects and things that, are exciting and light us up inside. Cause I think that that really, and that's what I tell my kids all the time is you need to do the thing that lights you up because as you said so aptly earlier, there are days that are just crap days where every bit of work feels like work, but if you are, and so it does not mean if you find your, I always say it's like a merger of passion and purpose If you find that passion and that purpose, it does not mean every day is gonna be walking on clouds. There are days that are gonna be crappy days. If you're aligned with who you, what you are passionate about and what you really wanna do in the world, then those crappy days are okay, they're bearable because you're working towards a larger goal. It can't just be about, you know, every moment being fantastic
1: to go back and plug FLS Academy real quick and the the benefits you can get, even if you don't want to do it professionally. Um, I talked with with Anthony Veneziale months ago um, before the original Broadway went, run. And he's got an episode on the podcast here. And, and so at the time, and I don't, I actually want to follow up with him and see what's come out of this, but he was working with a, with a professor to like go into an FMRI machine and have his brain scanned while he was freestyling and whatnot. And so he's like worked with this, with this professor, with this doctor to legitimately prove that when you're freestyling, you're unlocking a part of your brain that reduces inhibition. So that just, that fascinated me. The actual neuroscience behind freestyling is insanely cool. And it's something that I think enough people don't talk about or even like really understand yet. But when you're saying it takes bravery and they they want to go and unlock something and these students are going in to to find this creativity, you're literally rewiring your brain to be able to do this.
0: Absolutely right. I mean, it's really... It's really extraordinary. I mean, Anthony can talk for hours on this. He is so, talk about being lit up by something. Right. He just is, I mean, he could do a TED talk on this and it is extraordinary. There is so much data behind what it changes in your brain and why it is so important to do. And it's so interesting. Like I have found as someone who started as a performer so i'm not i'm not someone who gets stage fright or you know if i have to talk in front of a crowd i'm very comfortable doing that however when we have regular zoom meetings our freestyle zoom meetings if if <laughs> if anthony's on the call he always like throws a little something in where we have to start with like a little game And if I tell you that even as someone who is not afraid (laughs) to perform, the anxiety I get before it's my turn, and I'm on a friggin' Zoom, and I'm still like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And I'm right in this moment of like, what am I going to say? Is that going to be smart? Is it going to be okay? Like it's this panic. And the minute you kind of go with it, and you just allow yourself to be terrible, to say something stupid, you know, and there's no, and again, it's like the part of the rules of comedy. Yes. And you know, there are no buts it's and mm-hmm. like anything you say you're building on it and it's the other person's job to take that and bring it to another level. That is such an important practice. And it's also really important to quiet that inner voice that is so detrimental to all of us. You know, the voice Mm. in our heads that if we were a partner, we'd break up with that partner. Um, You know, the way we self-talk is not always good. It's usually not good. Um, And so this is the kind of training that is so important. I think, again, as human beings, how do we move through the world and shut off that kind of filter that we have that says, I can't say that, that's stupid, or no one's going to like that. Like, no, take, take the shot take the shot and try. So I, again, it's the metaphor of it feels really, really important to me. And one of the reasons we're so excited to bring it into the world and also to make it available to voices that aren't always centered and to people that can't always afford these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Like that feels like a very important thing to, to, to offer.
1: And to embrace failure, to bring it back full circle again, because yep. when you are freestyling, everything's not going to be gold. Everything's not going to be funny. And one of the things again, Anthony, and I've talked with Shockwave and Anissa and James and Tommy, James and Roy Gilhart, and everything is about is about like you said, yes and. But it it's the love and respect for each other and having each other's backs because you see this in the hulu That's documentary our, that is
0: our saying right got, got your back i got your back that is our saying. Yep. before
1: every show like they huddle right. up they say i got your back i got your back i got your back before and i think in i think i forget i think it was in the in the classes too before you get started you're like i got your back i got your back and it's that
0: is our that is every show that is how it starts backstage everyone as and it's happening when they you know everyone huddles up but then also even going up the stairs, it's just so sweet. You hear them saying to each other as they're walking up the stairs to go onto the stage, you know, I got your back, got your back. Um, It's, I mean, it gives me chills actually. It's so loving and beautiful. And I also think you said something that's interesting too, about, you know, going back to the failure piece. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a sports, I'm not overly um, knowledgeable in all sports terminology. However, (laughs) I will say, um, you know, I believe if you are batting 300, you're like your hall of fame, right? Like that's like hall of fame is like, you know, 300 is,
1: is. That's pretty good. I guess I am not the correct person to. I am under the
0: impression. I am under the impression that that is a pretty, pretty um, aspirational stat to get, but that means, so let's go with, let's assume that that is correct that means that seven other times you've failed. It means you've you've hit it out of the park three times and seven times you failed. So this concept in our culture that we're supposed to hit it out of the park every time, it's just not the way the world works. It's just not possible. It is about, and if you, you know, and if you do look at, at sports and you look at, a, like you judge by the season, not by the game. No, no team is, I mean, I guess it happens at undefeated season, but the average team is not undefeated every game. It just doesn't work that way. You win your share of games. So why should life and all of these projects be any different than that? You know, you just, you take the swing, you do the best you can in the moment you're in with the information you've got. And it's either gonna go or it's not, but you're gonna learn something one way or the other, whether it's successful, whether it's not, it's about, it's how do we tap in and analyze where we've just come from and go from there. And, you know, I think that is for me when there's been failure or something didn't happen, it's not that it's not disappointing, but as long as you're aligned with your core set of beliefs and you know that you went into it for the right reasons, I can live with a show not doing well if I really believe in the show. If I am proud of the work that we put out, we, we've we had plenty of things that have come through Ars Nova that I think to this day where I'm like, I cannot believe that did not Do better or that wasn't received well because, but it's. And am I disappointed that it wasn't? Of course, it was disappointing, but I don't feel bad or regretful that we did it because I fully believe in what we did. On the flip side, I've been involved in things that have been successful, that in my heart of hearts, I've been like, "Eh." and it's not obviously I'm thrilled it's successful. But it doesn't fill me up in the same way as even the things that have been less successful, but that I fully believe in, that fills me up from a creative standpoint much more than what feels more like an empty success. So I really try to make choices now as I've gotten older, really doing a a quick check with myself about what is gonna make me most excited, what is going to make me proudest, What do I want to leave to the world? What do I want to put out there? And it doesn't mean it has to be super important and making a huge shift in everything I do. It could just be people laughed tonight and escaped from feeling bad. That's a that's a that's a big accomplishment. That's okay. But I really only want to do those things that I feel passionate about. So that's I think where I am now in this moment in my life and as a producer.
1: Oh, I love that. All right, you've been so generous with your time. I want to. I want to wind up here, and I. I do three standard closing questions, but before we get into those, I think as a producer, I want to ask you a special one, and just ask for anybody who is sort of um, wanting to get into producing in in whatever capacity that means to them. Um, what is the easiest way that you can recommend for them to get started and learn about how to pre how to produce TV or film or Broadway?
0: I would say. Um... And this is really something that does not have to happen in New York. It can happen anywhere in the world. It is about aligning yourself with the talent. Um, It really all comes from those relationships. You know, forging relationships with your peers at this moment in time is the way to go as far as I'm concerned. Because you come up together, you grow together. So if somebody is, you know in a small town, and they want to produce, I would say, see if you can identify some peers who are writers, who are composers, who do self-devised work, whatever that looks like, align yourself with someone that you think is talented, and that you're excited by. And even if you don't know them, go, you know, send an email, call, whatever it is. But the, the approach for me would be I think you are so talented. I would love to find a way to work together. What are you working on? Are you open to that? Take them out for coffee, develop those relationships, nurture those relationships, because whether something comes from it or not, it's also tremendously good practice on how to move a project. And those things slowly start to become clear what the next step is. Maybe it is about renting a space in your town and doing something on a small level, raising some money. And again, it can, doesn't have to be a lot of money. It could be something small for one night, even Um, renting a, a venue for one night or a school auditorium or whatever that might be. But I would say it all starts with relationships. This is a relationship business. And so you want to start figuring out what excites you as a producer and how to connect with those people and then support them and, um that's I think the logical best way to uh, move into the the field.
1: I love that. okay, so now the three standard closing questions. The first one just very simply is what motivates you
0: it's it's my it's my passion. it's my um when I feel something it's my spark like whatever sparks me, uh if it speaks to my heart and soul in some way and it's something that I want to put into the world, those are the things. The, they they f- anything that feels important to me it doesn't need to be important to anybody else but if it is a theme that is important to me that's a very big motivation for me
1: okay next question is then this is similar to what i asked you at first but what advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path
0: again i would i would come back to being the you know the the advice i would actually try to to um, tell my younger self to lean into a little bit more is really tuning in to what it is that is most interesting to me. Not doing things because I think I should, but because I want to. That really figuring out what your aesthetic is and the things that you want to put into the world and then aligning yourself with those things um, I think is is the best approach for mitigating possible missteps. Because um, again, if we're aligned with what we are passionate about, things usually go a little bit better. So <laughs> I would encourage people to really try to look in at and ask themselves and that's experimentation. It's kind of going to be the scientific method mm-hmm. of testing it out. But I, I would go with with really trying to tap into authentically what you're
1: interested in awesome and then the last question is then if you could only see one show for the rest of your life but you can see it as many times as you want what would you see
0: oh my goodness yikes oh please freestyle of supreme (laughs) Um, (laughs) great answer it's a perfect answer but it's also uh appropriate because it is different every night so Mm -hmm. it would be a little bit different every every time i see it so i'll never get bored
1: all right where can we find you online
0: you can find me on uh Basically, my Instagram is is I'm pretty much a Luddite online, um, <laughs> but I do have uh, Instagram. So uh, it's just my name on Insta.
1: And you can find <laughs> me online at the dot com. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at theater underscore podcast at Facebook slash official theater podcast. Please leave a rating leave a review. Every little bit helps. Thank you to Jukebox the Ghost for the intro and outro music. And Jenny, thank you so much. This has been so interesting interesting you've been so generous with your time just thank you thank you
0: thank you this was wonderful i love talking to you
1: take a deep breath make the world a little colorful